Hey, listen, if you've got a Bible or a device, we're going to be in Acts 25 today. We're a church that likes to preach through the Bible verse for verse, and today is a little bit of one of our longer passages in the book of Acts, <clears throat> and, but I think it's going to be very helpful for us today. It, it's been helpful for me just going over it. Some of you, you probably grew up with some of the same toys I did. I mean, I'm not the oldest guy in the room, but I'm probably one of the older ones, but I'm old enough uh, to have grown up with a Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> there it is. Um, which was a fun toy for about a day or a week when all the body parts were still there. But after about a year, I'd have like a hat and an ear, right? <laughs> and so had my Mr. Potato Head really been alive like in Toy Story, it had just been grumpy, just looking for body parts the whole time it existed. So, you know, because I grew up with one of these, I was a little bit bored with the news last year that Hasbro removed the Mr. title from Mr. Potato Head. Maybe some of you remember reading that. And the Miss, by the way. And they just made it Potato Head, right? Just Potato Head. I get it. It's today's corporate climate. Predictably, it was a tip of the hat to the gender fluid community as a way to accommodate. There was a lot of outcry over gendering that toy. And so... They accommodated until parents started flipping out everywhere that this was happening to their childhood favorite toy. So Hasbro pivoted and accommodated them, and they decided to sell a Mr. and a Mrs. version. Of course, you're going to have to scroll down to find it, but they're going to keep the branding the same, which is just Potato Head, all right? Now, why did Hasbro do this? Why? It's a pretty easy question, really. It's the same reason that Chipotle and Starbucks and Pepsi or a hundred other big companies do. It's because there's a lot of pressure from intimidating voices in culture today. There's a lot. And when convictions aren't really deep, they're going to change whenever intimidation comes. I'm not typically a pastor that reacts to the news cycle whenever it comes around, and I'm definitely not going to declare war on Hasbro today or anyone else. In fact, as I grow older as a communicator, as a pastor, I've learned to choose my battles with a little bit better precision. But, but, our passage today leads you and me to appropriate the gospel, even when, even when the winds change. And we find ourselves easily intimidated by the heavy voices into either gospel silence or even worse, gospel denial. Now that's a battle I will enter, how we appropriate the gospel in the shifting culture that we have today. Because toy genders, that might change from time to time as a symbol of the times, but the gospel doesn't change. And so therefore the church cannot change. You know, I mean, let me, let me ask you, I mean, have you noticed the felt pressure to maybe alter or bend your words about Jesus when you walk into a room? It doesn't take long to get the temperature of a room, right? What kind of room am I in? And you realize it's probably not a room that would be amicable to you talking about Jesus or God or mentioning words like Bible and church. I'm not talking about the pressure to stay out of politics. That we all understand and can see a mile away. I'm talking about the pressure to be silent about Christ himself because society's temperature, it has changed. I mean, some of you have seen this as a headline um, on many of your apps, whatever news you read, but it's, it's going like wildfire. The new results that came in from Pew Research Center, right? You probably saw it hiding under a headline that sounded like the decline of Christianity or decline, the decline of Christianity's majority position 
and culture. And, and what Pew Research did, and they've done this often, and they don't just work with religion, by the way. They work with several different demographical groups. But one of the things they did is they wanted to discern what is most likely for the church by 2070, a little less than 50 years. What could the church look like? So they built an algorithm, and it's a little different from the one that they've had in the past. They included things like birth rate, which is somewhat static, if not a little bit in decline. They considered the age of different groups that would say that they have faith in God. They even, they even included something they called a disaffiliation rate, which is what we would call the Duns. They would be the, the kiddos that grew up in Christian homes that decided at some point, I'm done with this, and then they move out. Those have rates in different regions versus others. They took that into consideration. They even peered across the pond and looked at Western Europe to see how it will actually decrease and then kind of level off to a certain point. So they put all of this kung fu into their magical little machine, their algorithm, and this is what they came up with. They came up with four different likely scenarios. I'm just going to give you what they consider to be the most likely. Right? You can always go find it if you want on your own. But according to Pew, what's most likely by 2070 is that Christianity will go from what is today 64% of our country down to 39%, losing the majority for the first time. Okay? The religiously unaffiliated, whether it's nuns or duns, will go from what is currently 30% up to 48% most likely according to them. So by the time I turn 94, Christianity would have decreased by 64% in our country. That's pretty amazing. And if you add to this some other statistics we actually watch happening now, you'd have to speculate to what it looks like by 2070. But right now, we have 5,000 churches closing per year. That's 96 per week. Hey, that means that today, 96 churches in America are having their last service. That's today. <laughs> But yet we're only, as a country, planting 28 churches per week. We're not even keeping up. I mean, I want you to think about that. We're not revitalizing, merging, planting, not, not enough to even gain ground. We can't even hold ground as Christians right now. And this is going to have long-term effects. It's going to affect public policy, economics, education. This will affect what books are in or are not in a library, crime, legislation, marriage rates, foster family rates, divorce rates, city building, how we fund nonprofits, everything. It will affect everything. But here's the one thing the study did not take into account and why I don't go suddenly into despair whenever I read something like that, okay? It doesn't take into account the fact that God moves through revivals and awakenings. Can't figure that in. The black swan event of God just showing up and breathing across a broken and dry landscape of bones and seeing his church come alive and robust with the Spirit of God to be courageous into a city that is desperately needing to hear the gospel. Just to watch the city itself wake up and become born again. Revivals. To be fair to Pew, they did say in the study that the only thing that could maybe turn all of this Fancy research upside down is the church doing something different. They have to speak vaguely, but I understand that to be something like an awakening. We've seen awakenings in the past, great awakenings. The first one, the second great awakening. We've seen what it can do to society. But one thing that we see every time is that it requires a people that are beyond intimidation, that aren't intimidated by peers, aren't intimidated by the heavy voices around them. 
But how do we do that as a church? How do we do it? And that's what this passage is going to teach us today. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 24. I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, and talk a little bit just to maybe unpack this passage. Now, I want you just to be reminded that Paul is incarcerated. And last week when Sean was up here, he talked about some of the interaction he had with Felix. And now all of a sudden there's this new guy there named Festus. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Who is this guy Festus, by the way? He is replacing Felix. We don't really have much of a reason given here. History will just tell you that Felix was a pretty lousy governor, wasn't very good at his job, so he got recalled, new guy on the scene. So Festus is the new governor, okay? Verse 2, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about that man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them for not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me. Okay, there is pressure in this moment that Festus is feeling. It's to, it's to impress these intimidating Jewish leaders. And they were intimidating. They were the power brokers of the area. They were the scholars. They were the ones that held cultural sway. Festus needed to have favor with them. I mean, that's one of the reasons that Felix was booted is because he was bad at this. So the first thing Festus does when he gets the gig, he gets the promotion, is he hightails it to Jerusalem to curry some favor with these guys. And the first thing they want is, hey, we need Paul. That's what we want. You see, like a broken record, the same Jewish leaders drag out the same old trumped-up charges against Paul with the same old strategy of killing him in route. Not super innovative, but they're sticking to it, right? But Festus doesn't want to be seen as a pushover. Hard to govern an area if you're a puppet. Yet, he needs this off his desk at the same time. And also, he's looking to maybe have some favor with the Jewish leaders. So he says, basically, Paul, what do you think? I think it's not a bad idea. What do you think? This is what he says in verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, 
To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Listen, Festus is probably fine with this appeal at this point because it takes the circus out of town. He can finally get to his job when this is good for him. The problem is, is he doesn't know what to report. He can't just send somebody to Caesar. He's actually got to send a little bit of a report of this is why I'm sending him here. Here's not just a random guy for you to deal with, but this is the problem we find with him, and he's a little stuck as to what to say. But here's what I want you to really see in this. Festus knew he was buckling under intimidation. He's feeling, he's bending already. He needed to be liked by these powerful people. Festus, just like a lot of corporate America today, a lot of celebrities today, a lot of Hollywood today, a lot of politics today, it bows quickly to intimidation. We see this, you see this all the time. Someone apologizes for something publicly that wasn't even a crime, why? because they needed to impress somebody. There was intimidating people that were threatening, so they come out with a statement, right? Or someone makes a statement that they don't even really believe. They just say it. Why? Because that's the only way to keep favor when there's intimidating voices coming from every single angle. But here's the thing. You can't do the right thing when you have to impress intimidating voices, can you? You can't tell them a story that they might not want to hear if they intimidate you. That's for sure. You can't tell them news that might indict them, that might be hard if you need them to adore you. Can't do it. It's impossible. I think this is my opinion. I think that's why much of the church is silent. Much of the church is silent evangelically is just because we're so easily intimidated by the heavy voices all around us. So let's see what happens in verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay, this is interesting. I love this. Another intimidating guy enters the picture. Marcus Julius Agrippa II. He's about 30 years old whenever this happens. He's got Bernice with him, who's about 29. That's his sister, but they made out. Apparently they were a thing. That was a thing back then. He was like married. She was married to her her uncle for a little bit. So they're traveling together, but they're also an item. So whatever that's about. But this guy comes from a very difficult bloodline. He comes from the Herodian dynasty. What this means is his dad is the one that killed James. His dad is the one that imprisoned Peter. 
His great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus and ended up killing a bunch of children instead. His great-uncle is the one that killed John the Baptist. This is the family that this guy is from. History considers him to be one of the most vicious and best leaders in that whole dynasty. So the intimidation factor goes up a notch or two. In fact, the whole setting is about to go off the charts with intimidation. So look at verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned, me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Of course, that makes sense. William Barclay, who is a a theologian and a Bible teacher, he considers this scene that we just read the most dramatic scene in the New Testament. And we don't think about that when we read it, right? We read right through it. Some dude showed up in a room. Paul enters the room. Next verse. But this is as red carpet as it gets. This is like the Met Gala where all the movers and shakers, all the lawmakers and athletes and celebrities, they all show up dressed weird. Cameras can't take pictures fast enough. They're all making statements. It's over the top impressive. Generals, crowns, entourages, elites, all the power brokers are there. And then Paul shows up, right? Smelling like a jail cell, shackles on. He's got bedhead from sleeping on the floor right? Doesn't even care about what's going on in the room. He just shows up. I'm telling you, it would have been easy to buckle in a moment like this. The pressure to bend in this space is high. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you're surrounded by elites, people that are way out of your category in your mind? I mean, you know that they put on their pants just like you do, right? They lose their car keys just like you do. You know that, but at the same time, they're intimidating, I've been in a couple key settings where I look around. I've been in a key setting where I was around with admirals and ambassadors and congresspeople and senators and governors, just, just within arm's reach. And here in my mind, I know, I know they're just normal people, yet I find myself measuring my words. I watch what I say. I scrutinize the things I do. I'm all of a sudden very, very, very aware of how I'm holding myself in a moment like that. You are too, don't judge me. Listen, if you post something in a group text with your friends, you don't put any thought into it, right? You just slam it in there, bad grammar, emoji, done, and then you move on. But if you had one million followers, and a lot of them were the elites, and a lot of them had hundreds of thousands of followers, well, you're going to take a little bit more time, aren't you? You're going to craft it, attempt grammar, maybe put a filter on that picture, Make sure that it checks all the boxes so that you don't get just drug in the comments below. What is happening when you do that? It's intimidation. It's intimidation. It's that Festus in you. It's the Festus in me. We understand the edges of intimidation far more than we like to admit, right? Sometimes when the winds change, you and I, 
we're tempted to change as well. The temptation is there, right? All right, let's look at, look at the next verse, verse 1 of chapter 26 to see how this is about to go. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretches out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today, especially against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Why is he saying that? Because this guy can never get a word out edgewise. Have you noticed that in the book of Acts? He's always interrupted. He can never finish a sermon. Someone's either throwing a brick or throwing a punch or a mob acts like a mob or the police come. He never gets to finish what he's saying. He's really hopeful right here that this guy, who's a Jew, is going to listen to him. Finally, finally, somebody that understands is going to listen to me. That's what he's feeling right now. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promises made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. That's an important sentence right there. A lot of times we just look at Paul as just kind of unaware in his past life, like he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. Right here it states very clearly that he did. He was just trying to get people to confess to things that was not true. He says, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All right, he's finally getting to preach to a guy he thinks is going to understand and then he launches into the last part of his testimony. He says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, so a, a couple weeks ago we talked about how Paul would give his testimony repeatedly. You just saw another time where he did it. I think that might have been the third time he's given his testimony. And what we remarked back then or noticed back then is that the bones the skeleton to his testimony would remain the same through all of them, right? He's checking all the boxes. It's identical. But they would be nuanced a little bit, shaded or colored 
by who he's speaking to. And that's true in this case. He's becoming all things for all people, and certain things are going to color his testimony depending on who he's talking to. And right here, he actually spends more time about how God commissioned him than he does how he saved him. He does mention that God rescued him on that day of blinding light. But really what he's saying is, I was sent into this. I was commissioned for this work. I've carried out my calling. It shouldn't have landed me here. I shouldn't be here. Not after doing what God has asked me to do which is going to be really difficult for the room to disagree with. All right, let's finish this chapter. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision, or I, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And that's typically what's gotten him in trouble, that, the G word right there. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He can't finish this sermon either. This guy's never going to get a shot, is he? He's never going to get it out of his mouth. I mean, he is being shouted over by Festus. Festus isn't raising his hand and saying, ah, pardon, pardon. A quick comment before you go any further. He is screaming over him. You're so smart, you're stupid right now. Like, you're so smart that you're a little bit crazy. Like, this is not, what are you talking about? And he's saying it louder than Paul. Paul answers, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. He's just saying basically right there, he's saying this whole Jesus thing, yeah, that wasn't done in a corner. That wasn't in the shroud of darkness. We've all heard of Jesus. We all know what we did to Jesus. We all know he's not in the tomb anymore. We all know what he said. We all know what he did. That was not hidden. We're all aware. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you per persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Such a cool, smooth comeback right there. So smooth. Verse 30. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay, here's the question. It's a question I have as an average guy. I'm just an average guy who has felt the very edges of intimidation often. How does Paul do this? How? Where did he get all this courage from, the clarity? How is he not equivocating like Festus does? Is he, just, is he just tougher than us? Is he just better than us? Is he bulletproof, doesn't care about other people's opinions? Paul actually tells us the answer. The answer is Paul has already seen glory. He's already seen 
pomp. He's already been overawed. This moment isn't impressive to him at all. He's already met a great king. Agrippa is not impressive. You see, on the last letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he says this in 2 Corinthians 12. You can stay where you're at. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Right? And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Interesting. Because mankind has never really ever had a problem uttering or writing about majestic things that it has seen. Our best poets, our best writers have no problem scribbling down something majestic that they've seen. That's part of the reason they are our favorite poets and writers is because we can kind of see what they have seen through their words. And yet, Paul heard and saw things that he cannot rehearse in front of mortal ears. It's pretty amazing. So Festus and Agrippa, they stood no chance of impressing Paul. He's holding his yawns back in this space right here. They're pretending to be in charge, but not too long before this, he's in a prison cell, and the one who was really in charge was standing next to him saying, take courage. Take courage. They're not going to hurt you. You're going all the way to Rome. This is a dog and pony show to him. He cannot be intimidated in this moment, not because he's tougher than you and not because he's tougher than me, but because he's already been captured. He has chains holding him to this earth for a moment, but his heart's already been captured. He's already dead to this world. He's already seen glory. For Paul to live as Jesus, to die as even more Jesus for eternity. And here's what's cool. Paul caught a shadow of paradise, and he cannot even interpret what he saw. He just caught a shadow of it, right? And as overwhelmed as he was in that moment, there's something even more awe-inspiring for you and me. For you and me. And that's the gospel story. Some of you are like, I knew he was going to say that. I knew he was going to say the gospel. But the gospel itself, the story and the reality and the power of what God has done for broken mankind and creation through the person of Jesus, the saving work of the gospel and the sustaining work of the gospel. It does both, friends. It does both. It's important for us to always remember that. The saving, sustaining truth of what God has done for mankind. In fact, this is how Peter says it in 1 Peter 1. He says, it was revealed to them, them being Old Testament prophets. These are men of God from several hundred years previously. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things in which to angels look with longing. Things into which angels long to look. They look to peer into it. This is it's a quick translation for you. Angels constantly saw what Peter got a glimpse of. Peter, Paul, not Peter. Paul gets a glimpse of paradise, right? A glimpse, and then he comes back. He doesn't even know if he's in the body or not. Whether I'm in the body or not, don't know. That's not, God knows. I'll figure it out someday, I'm sure, but I don't even know. He wasn't even aware. He was not even present enough to know whether he was in his own body or not. He got a glimpse. He got a whiff of paradise. These angels, they are constantly looking at it. They exist in it. And still, what do they long to look at? The gospel in action. The gospel in action. Now, that is what's fascinating to me because we see this as commonly boring, the gospel. It shows how, how far we have to grow, right? I mean, doesn't it make you wonder if you really have grasp of the gospel when we get bored with what angels long to look at? 
I mean, when, when I grew up as a young man in the Lord and I first tripped on this passage right now, I thought, man, maybe I just don't understand the gospel as much as I thought. Because whenever the guy on stage starts talking about the gospel, I'm like, check, got it. Moving on, though? We're moving on, though, right? I mean, that's the gospel. I'm already saved. I'm a Christian. Listen, we've got to become perpetual students of the gospel, always a student of the gospel. It's not an opening chapter in a book where you read chapter one and then you turn the page and you move on to chapter two through end. It's, it's not something that, that just goes away, that we partition it off, like, like one of the introductory classes that we took in college. That we, do, we kind of push aside, we don't really use it as much anymore. It's more than that, it's the through line of the entire story and narrative of God. It's the through line of our average days. It is the remedy for everything that is painful in your life today. It is the remedy for everything that is sad and crooked and broken today. Today, it sustains us by fixing our addictions, fixing our broken marriages, solving our loneliness, our anxiety. It is timely enough to defeat fear, to defeat death. Pure research cannot measure it. It's active today. It sustains us today. This is why our chief value is gospel fascination, right? Not just gospel. Gospel is actually one of our doctrinal cornerstones, if not our gospel, doc- or gospel doctrinal cornerstones. But being fascinated with it is a value. Being intrigued by it, learning about it, becoming a student of it. Friends, if it's not fascinating or intriguing to you, the idea of the gospel, then your view of it is grossly incomplete. Because the more you understand it, the more you want of it. The more you see it, the more it bothers you, and you're just magnetically drawn to it at the same time. The more it's impossible, and yet within grasp, at the same time. Listen, ask the Holy Spirit to show you more of the story and the truth and the power of what God has done through mankind in the person of Jesus for mankind in the person of you. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you more. Become a student. Read books on it. Meditate on it. Journal on it. Talk about it. If you go to the front page of our website and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the front page, you'll see a blog there on gospel resources. Those are my favorite books to become more acquainted with the story of the gospel. Or seven or eight of them. I've accumulated a library over the years. Because I'm like you. And I'll get to a place where I'm like, well, it's a good story, but it's becoming dull. It's not the steak knife it used to be. It's more of a butter knife. It's still there, but it's not as sharp. It doesn't zing as much. And so I, I, asked, I asked the Lord, can you show me a, a, a different angle? Can you make it more real to me? Can you make it more tangible for me? I want to be intrigued. I want to be fascinated by your gospel again. And he does, sometimes through these books, sometimes through the Bible, sometimes through my journaling, sometimes through community, but he does. Even in this moment, I want you to consider Jesus' work on the cross. Just Jesus' work on the cross to make you a new person, just a new image, okay, a new person. This is important because we don't see ourselves as a new person when we look in the mirror, do we? You wake up like I do, you look in the mirror, you see the same old person. Same old person doing the same old broken things the same old broken way, right? But you have to know that spiritually, forensically, that's not how God sees you. He doesn't see you as the same old person. He sees you as a very different person. Paul talks to the Romans about this. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What did he predestine them to be? To be conformed to the 
image of his son, the person, the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, born in the image of man, right? He goes on, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. It's a new image. It's a new image, a brand new one. Because Jesus took your image on the cross, you took his away from the cross. You're not only a new image, you're in his image. This is why this is important for us today. It means your value cannot increase. Your value cannot increase. Your value cannot go up. God has already clicked the like and subscribe button on your life. Man cannot add a thing to you. Not a thing. Not all the red carpets in the world can lift your value. When we are intimidated, we forget that. That's all intimidation is. We just we forget it for a moment or for a lifetime, but we forget who God has made us to be. Intimidation actually will trust that mankind does have the power to increase our value or decrease our value. That's what, that's what it does. But we see here Paul needed no fans. He's happy to be a fan. He did not need to be adored. He's happy to adore. That's what we see in the life of Paul. He did not need what Festus needed. So let's maybe drive this into everyday life application before we hop out of it. Because being intimidated is super easy for us to find. It's easy for me to find. And I know I'm talking to people in community to different degrees. Some of us are kind of dipping our toe into the idea of community. Some of us have been in it as long as we can remember. But intimidation is easy to be found in community. You might be in community and it might not be authentic community. It might not be. If you're intimidated by the people in the room when you are in a community setting, whether it's this or a missional community or a Bible study or something like that, if you find yourself intimidated, it's because you fear being rejected, which means you can't be yourself, which, hear me, means you're lonely. That's why it's possible to be in a room full of people and just be very lonely, not be known, not know others deeply. You can only shake loneliness out of your life when you're authentic, but you can only really be authentic when you're not intimidated by other people. The answer to better community is not finding better people. It's not finding more people, different people, but it's resting in God's valuation of you instead of resting in the valuation your neighbors have given to you. Right? In fact, in honesty, you can't even be a good friend. You can't even be a good friend if you're intimidated because a good friend demands, let me say it differently, a good friend needs to be able to say hard things, difficult things. But if that person needs respect, needs value, needs adoration, they'll never say what needs to be said. Not only will you not have good friends, you can't be a good friend. If you're lonely, deeply unknown, and yet you're among a bunch of people, ask yourself how intimidated you feel. Ask yourself if you really see God's value of you more than people's value of you. Because the gospel says you're highly valued, highly approved, loved, and yes, God even likes you. So you're, you're free to be real and authentic. You're free to be rejected because it won't cost you anything. But I, I'm also talking to a people on mission, but maybe intimidated into silence. If you find yourself in settings like Festus here, you need to, where you just kind of buckle in order to be approved, you're never going to be able to deliver the gospel, right? The gospel is news that indicts before it intrigues. The gospel is news that is hard before it's beautiful. 
because it's our needs that we bring to Jesus. We don't just kick the door into the room and say, here I am, what do I add to my life? We drag ourselves to the foot of the cross full of need. It's the only thing we really contribute to the story of God is our deep need. And he takes us. Here's a caution. I've done this and I know people who have done this where we try to manufacture courage over peer pressure, over being intimidated by lowering other people and elevating self. It's the wrong way to do it. Where we say, I don't need your affection. We don't say it because we're full of God's affection. We say it because I don't want to give you the power. You, I, I'm above that. I'm above you. I don't need you. What that does is it still makes you the center. It elevates you and it pulls others down. And that's not the way to overcome in intimidation. It comes by elevating Christ. Weighing our value in God's eyes is weightier than man's eyes. This is how Peter says it in 1 Peter 3. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's saying, just don't be intimidated. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Friends, listen, we're headed into a society's future that is building a culture intolerable towards the gospel. I think Pew is trying to measure it. Whether they're on or off, or by however much they're off, I suspect what they suspect. Without a solid move of the Holy Spirit, without an unmistakable move of the Holy Spirit, we're vanishing ever so slightly. Churches are vanishing ever so slightly. Not small churches, not old churches, not crusty churches, they're not all churches. All churches is something that we're seeing. Part of the reason is the Agrippas of the world, the red carpet settings of the world convey to you every single day that to follow Christ is ridiculous. It's archaic and mythological. It's even bigoted and hateful. That's what it conveys. If you catch yourself silent, sitting in intimidation, your kids are going to feel it more. Your kids' kids will feel it even more. What we have when we walk away from the Bible in a passage like this is the, the provocation to pray for the Holy Spirit to bring a revival in our hearts, to show us the gospel, to make us love anew, to make us love freshly, to give us courage. We pray for revival, and then we pray for our city. Pray for an awakening of Knoxville. Pray it when we drive through it, when we catch ourselves in various settings, pray, God, could you change this place? Could you change this block, this community? Could you change this city? Pray it in. And then repent for moments where we find ourselves looking a lot like Festus, bending in the winds of change because it's unbelief in a solid God.